on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it is America's talk radio show about opera. It is Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, mercifully alone, because we're doing one of those best of podcast-only weeks. This week, we kick it off with an interview that was so good, no one actually remembers doing it. And then, a new segment that was so good, we didn't even have a title. Gonna get to that in a second. Make sure that you get your voice heard on the show. You can send a voice memo. Or email us your thoughts, opraboxscore at gmail.com. You want to get that OBS beer coaster, get that OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. If you have sent us a listener mailbag email or voice memo, you know what I'm talking about. You know that the merch is real, and we send it anywhere in the world. We have listeners in, say, London who have been able to get merch. Talk a little bit of sports before we get right into it. The Kentucky Derby, the most exciting two minutes in all of sports. I'm not a huge fan of horse racing, although my aunt spent many years working in the horse racing industry. I do like to watch the Kentucky Derby. I love the trumpet playing. I love the infield and the outfield. And sure, I'll watch two minutes of horse racing. Please tell me. You did not know Rich Strike was going to win the Kentucky Derby at 80 to 1 odds. That is the second longest ever long shot to win the Kentucky Derby. It was a great race. 80 to 1. That's how you make easy, easy money. 80 to 1. Rich Strike. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. In. October of 2021, Oliver went inside the huddle with dreamy tenor Charles Castronovo, and he literally does not remember a thing that they talked about in the interview, so you're just going to have to listen and figure out what was discussed. Oliver Camacho with Charles Castronovo. Matt and I uh, recalled your, or we declared that your um, Lensky, I forget how many years ago, three years ago, four years ago it was? Oh, three to four years ago, yeah, yeah. It was the best singing at Lyric Opera House that year by a man. Oh, I think that's You were competing nice. with Sandra Rabinowski singing Norma or something like that. But, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, it's a but, different thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it was definitely the most like moving and authentic and just deluxe toned Lensky I've ever heard. Um, and then I started to say, who is this guy? Like, how come I don't know what's going on with him? So I went back to my recordings and I saw that you had a, um, a Rossini Stabat Mater. I was like, oh my God, like- I'm from like 9 million years ago. <laughs> <laughs> is this the same guy? <laughs> I mean, um, clearly from the time you made that Rossini recording till the time I heard you singing in Onegin, some things have happened. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you're back here in Chicago, which is why we're able to get you as a guest. Uh, and you have one more performance of Elixir of Love. And by the time the audience hears this, you'll already be back in Europe or wherever you're going next. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, can we talk about why you're singing 
Nemorino right now. Not that I'm ha- not happy about it. I'm actually thrilled <laughs> that you are. But, um, you know, is there a story as to why Nemorino at Lyric? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> actually, the story is it was supposed to be Manon from Massenet. Uh, that was the scheduled opera that I was uh, contracted for, uh, actually with the same cast. So, but from what I understand, uh, because of the COVID um, you know, craziness, uh, it's a huge cast in Manon. You know, not only is it the four, let's say, main principles, but there is a huge um, kind of uh, smaller role cast you know, with very important roles. Uh, you got the three girls. I mean, there's just a ton of them. So um, I think in the end, they decided that it would be better to do something a bit more compact. And so they tried to find an opera that kind of just translated over with the same uh, voice types suppose, that we yeah. had ready. Yeah. <laughs> so um, they came up with Elixir, which to be honest, uh, at first I thought, oh God, Elixir, I haven't sung that in six or seven years or something. I'm not sure I want to do that. And, uh, but my manager, Alan Green, we were talking, he said, hey, listen, you know, you know, Caruso and Bergonzi and Pavarotti, they all sang Nemorino well into the very end of their career. He said, maybe it's nice and healthy. It's good. You know, it's a mix up from some of the other, let's say, more full things you're doing. And I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. I haven't been to America in a while. It would be nice. So in the end, I have to say, I've been having a ton of fun. It's been great. I was, uh, I was very pleased with myself that I was still able uh, to sing it, uh, you know, very well. The fast parts are, let's say, a little tricky, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's no coloratura, which would would have been a, a no-go for oh, me, you know. That goes by pretty fast. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of kind of pattery stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm still able to do it. And, you know, the the the, the big problem with uh, Nemorino is it's not that it's high. It's just that it sits in the passaggio the whole evening nonstop and you're on stage all the time so you really uh have to be disciplined with your passaggio so for me it was like a test or a checkup to see if uh, if i've still got things in order and so for me it's been a very uh, positive uh situation <laughs> mm. well i'd spoke to you recently for my other job and um i was just we were talking about the role of alfredo which you have yeah. a recording of now and so I'm just listening to your to your voice and thinking, oh, this guy is ready to sing, you know, Ricardo in Mass yeah. Ball or ready to sing Don Carlo. Yeah. Is that what's happening to you? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's been a slow process. I, I've always been patient enough, even when I didn't feel like being patient. I was patient enough, uh, um, you know, adding roles uh, slowly, you know, taking calculated risks when I felt it was uh, a good chance to do that. You know, the first time I sang Edgardo um, in Lucia, for example, was in Brussels. It was a nice, you know, relatively small opera house with a good acoustic. And uh, I remember my manager, him and I do well together because he always thinks I can do things uh, a certain role maybe two years before I think I can do it. So we sometimes find a happy medium, you know, where it's, you know, one year later, or sometimes we wait, or sometimes I think, you know what, maybe you're right. And I try it someplace small. And I say, you know what, you were right, I can do that pretty well now. <laughs> so we're going back and forth on this. But I remember with uh, Edgardo, for example, he was offer he was he had offers for me for two to three years. And I kept saying, I don't feel it yet. I don't think so. I don't think so. He said, Okay, fine, we'll wait, we'll wait. Finally, I did it. And um, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. And I said, you know what, I'm going to put it on hold for a couple of years. And, and we, you know, we 
have a lot of respect for each other, said, okay, fine, you feel you want to put it on hold? Let's do it. So we didn't do it again for about two and a half, three years. And when I did it the next time, of course, it was a lot better and I felt more secure and everything was getting better. So this has been my method for my career. Uh, some calculated risks to stretch and grow and then coming back doing some, even popping in a couple Mozarts that I don't do very much anymore, but still uh, every once in a while and uh, something like Nemorino. So that has afforded me to grow. Uh, I finally hit puberty and now I'm starting to sing uh, <laughs> some, you know, big, more manly roles. Yeah, you know? <laughs> big boy roles, yeah. Right, big boy roles, yeah. Huh, well, that that's a whole other topic which i wasn't prepared to talk with you about so maybe we'll <laughs> shelve it but um yeah, the, yeah. the idea of a manager who actually understands Bach and understands yeah. uh the progression of roles and is also um you know looking out for their artists to make sure that they're not doing something that they're not ready for yeah, that is a whole other show for I, I can imagine. But uh, just as a quick note, there are some who know that, but usually it's the type who first off love singers, second off is like a complete opera nerd. You know, they have to really know the rep and the traditions of who sang those roles, you know, because there are many roles where you can find everyone from a dramatic tenor to a lighter tenor, you know, all successfully singing a certain type of role or a certain role, you know. And uh, so there are many examples. It depends on your cast. It depends on where it is. So, yeah, to have a manager that really knows that stuff, it's, it's you know, it's it's a bit rare. So, and but I think it's the singer's job to know that first because, if they know it and maybe the manager doesn't know as much, you can still navigate the right way, you know? So it's really, it's on the singer's shoulders to really take care of that. Yeah. Well, the topic I did want to talk with you about uh, is one that's sort of an evergreen uh, for us, uh, which is the idea of being a parent uh, in this business. And also right. you have the double impact of having a partner uh, Ekaterina Surina, who is also an internationally sought after artist. So you're looking at two opera singers with major careers. Yeah. Uh, can you please talk to us about what was it like to decide to start a family? Um, what type of support system you had? And I definitely want to get into some of the nitty gritty about like just <laughs> yeah. the logistics, like how yeah. do you like who takes a contract or do you yeah. just have full time help or are there parents involved? Uh, yeah. All of these things are very fascinating for us. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you have to kind of make up as you go. I, of course, I asked some colleagues who had been going through the same thing and everyone has their own method. Uh, everyone has their own support systems, you know, like my parents uh, we we didn't have the parent built-in support system as far as you know a, a grandma who will say okay i'll come take care of the kids full time some people are lucky enough to have that we didn't have that my mom helped you know in bits you know she'd stay a couple months with us and then then we wouldn't you know necessarily see her for a year because we'd be traveling so much. and then she would come for a couple months travel a little bit and then go back home you know but um We've had plenty of nannies, you know, before, like au pairs. Sometimes they were great. Sometimes it didn't work out at all. You know, it was just kind of a disaster. Um, so we've tried everything. We, we used to homeschool uh, our older boy because we were traveling so much at the time, both of us. Um, and that was kind of okay for a while. Um but he wasn't getting as much, uh, you know, kind of just interaction with people. Yeah. yeah, you know. And so at a certain point, he said, I kind of want to go to school. And I thought, 
yeah, that would be better for you. And plus, you know, I was not a, made to be a teacher. That's for sure. I can hang out online with him and make sure. But I mean, you know, by the time you get to sixth grade, um, uh, math, you can count me out already. You know, my math is so bad. I'm just like, what, what is this? This is not my job, you know? So, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for, uh, teachers after, especially after the lockdown, you know, having to do that stuff, mm. I thought, oh man, but, um, you know, we have played it, you know, kind of by ear most of the time, but I would say that, uh, my wife, Katharina, she, she, she never was crazy about the lifestyle of an opera singer anyway, even before we had kids, it wasn't really her thing. You know, she would like to go to a job and then come home and stay and do the garden and do normal things and then go for a nice job and then come back. Whereas I was completely different. I was just like, if I, if I'm not singing, if I'm not out on the road traveling, I'm getting a little bit crazy at home. So, you know, this is unfortunate, you know, that it, it didn't match that way, but it, what ended up happening was that she was staying home more often than me. And then on the other end, and this is just honestly technical, the way the business works, a lot of times, if you're a decent tenor, you can line up work quite early. So a lot of times I was getting good contracts before she would get a contract for the same time period. And then she was left with the dilemma of, should I just let you sing or do I want to sing too? And what are we going to do with the kids at that time? So, you know, it was always tricky, really tricky. Now that uh, we live in Berlin full time, um, she's home more often, uh, not only because a lot of things got canceled, but, uh, because she has chosen to, to do that more often, but they're at an age now, well, 14 and seven where, you know, sometimes a friend, friends of ours will stay for a few days and like, you know, they barely need any help. You know, they do a lot. They're very independent. They've traveled since they were kids all over the world. So uh, if she's gone for a couple of weeks and I'm uh, gone for a week of that, and then I come home, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? So uh, time has gone very fast, but it hasn't uh, stopped being tricky with the logistics, but it's always, I mean, maybe it's my Latin blood or something, but, you know, I always figure out a way, but sometimes it's last minute, you know, who's going to hang out with the boys.
live in Berlin. Yes. Have you always lived in Berlin? No. So we were in, uh, I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in New York, but I, I grew up in Los Angeles since I was about two years old. No, but with the, and, with the kid, once you guys started having yeah. a family. Yeah, that was definitely in L.A. It started in oh, L.A. Wow. because okay. my wife's from Russia. And, you know, if you if you take a, a girl from Russia and you show her Los Angeles and she doesn't want to leave. You know? So, <laughs> because you know, it's sunny. It's nice. You know, everything's all good. So we kind of settled there. We have a home there near my, uh, my near my parents. But uh, of course, I was traveling, I would say, for the last I mean, basically almost all my career um, has been based in Europe. So I would say 90 to 95% of my work usually is in Europe. So that's a long trip. You cannot go to LA on the weekends. You know what I mean? Uh, it's just not possible. So we struggled through that for quite a long time. And uh, as it just got more and more difficult, I said, okay, it's enough. We're going to Europe. Uh, I had bought an apartment in, in Berlin probably about 15 years ago because I was singing there often and it was dirt cheap at that time dirt cheap and we needed a base in Europe because you know we were both singing in Germany and France and different places so it made a lot of sense we never lived there but uh, we would go when we sang there we would stop and stay there for a couple weeks while you sing a show or even a month and then leave Uh, sometimes we would go there switch our baggage change clothes you know we left our um, winter clothes there switch it up and then go to the next place Um, we would rent it to singers sometimes here and there, you know, friends and stuff. Uh, but then I eventually said, okay, it's enough. So about three years ago, we went full time to Berlin. So, you know, it took a lot. I have an Italian passport also. So the logistics of actually be- becoming residents there were very, very easy. Uh, even though uh, Katrina and our boys, they don't have Italian citizenship, but because I have it, they immediately got the residency. So that was really great. And, um, you know, then there was the whole fact, the whole issue of getting health insurance and getting them in, uh, registered in school and, you know, blah, 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 all the stuff. But I have to say, even in a way, it's been more tiring for me because now when I sing in Paris or London or wherever, if I have a couple of days off, I rush home, I fly home in two hours. And I have a couple of days, you know, with the family, the, hang out with the boys, take them to school, do whatever. And then I fly back and do my next performance, you know, or, or get back into rehearsals. So it's been much better in that sense. I see that I, I don't have a, until now, I don't have this, you know, six to eight week absence and literally not being able to come, you know. And so now singing in, in Chicago, I've been, you know, gone about six weeks almost. Uh, and I haven't been able to go. They've been in school, so they can't come. They're coming tomorrow, actually, <laughs> because uh, they have their two-week uh, kind of fall break. Um, but yeah, so that's how it is now. But anyway, most of the time I'm in Europe. So it's so. Better. what languages are spoken at home and what languages are they studying in? Like, yeah. are they studying, are they in American school in Berlin or are they? No, no, actually. So I wanted that. Well, first off, uh, Katharina speaks only Russian to them. So they speak Russian since childhood and they speak English for me. And uh, now they're speaking very good German because they, well, the little one goes to all German school because I thought, you know, let him just go for it. He started school in Germany. So that's all he's known. So he's doing very well in German. And my older boy, Alessandro, who's 14, he goes to international school, but it's half and half, half German and half English. So 
he's also doing very well. So for me, I thought I will give them everything that I didn't quite have uh, growing up. So right now they're basically trilingual and uh, Alessandro's studying Spanish already in school. So that's the next one. So it's- uh, So they're probably gonna become CIA agents. Yeah, that would be great, you know, or something like that, (laughs) or an international opera singer. I mean, who knows? (laughs) Do you have any anecdotes for us about, I I just want to give you a chance to like big up a company that was particularly helpful uh, with understanding about your situation with having kids and having a wife who might be also doing a gig somewhere. Was there any company that was like, yes, we've got it. Here's somebody, we're going to assign this, you know, whatever um, production, rehearsal uh, production room to like watch your kids for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, <clears throat> there are, there are not anything uh, that I've seen in opera houses that are really set up, you know, to help parents necessarily. Of course, there are certain teams and certain um, management uh, at different opera houses who are very understanding of it. And uh, well, before COVID, for example, I used to bring uh, the boys, especially Katharina, she, she loves that, to bring the boys to rehearsal very often, you know, um, you know, and they feel at home in the theater because we brought them so many times. They're very well behaved because they know, you know, how it is, they feel how it is. Um, <clears throat> nowadays, it's a little bit more tricky because, you know, no one can come backstage anymore. But, um, you know, for example, in London, I was singing Covent Garden. Actually, we were singing together. You know, we don't sing together too often, but sometimes. And we were doing a magic flute there several years ago now. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the team said, oh, Alessandro's here. Why doesn't he, uh, you know, he could be in the show. He can be one of Papageno's little kids, you know, that runs out, you know, during the duet. And uh, we said, yeah, that would be great. It would be so fun. So they sent him, he even got paid and he was in his little <laughs> costume and he was having so much fun on stage. And when we did our bow, we had him in between us when we took our bow mm-hmm. and it was a great uh, experience. He made a couple friends there that he still speaks to from England, you know, that he still talks to that were in the cast with him. Uh, so, you know, there's been a few times where it worked out well, but um you know, nowadays it's a little bit different, obviously, you know, so I, I, I don't envy some parents now, you know, because you, you really have to have someone at home because, you know, you can't bring anyone to the theater. So your career seems to be on the rise. I know it's been sort of a, a, a long game for you, but I feel like we are in the Casanova-sance right now. <laughs> and uh, I hope so. I'm, I'm so, you know, looking forward to the next thing. And I, I think we should acknowledge that uh, your success is coming now, despite the very big disadvantage you have of being just a very unattractive person. <laughs> it's really hard to like look at you. On well, this. you know, you can't. <laughs> well, you know, you can't have everything. I got, I got the hair. That's about it. You know. So, <laughs> so you're you're uh, you're a very good looking guy, Thank and you. um, you know, my audience knows me that I'm trying to be very. Uh, <laughs> Well behaved okay. here. It's okay. Um, I'm relaxed. Uh, I cannot be offended. Don't worry. Do you have any <laughs> any tips about like how you manage to like keep the upper body strength? I mean, like in Elixir of Love, you're basically parading around in a tank top, you know, and right. scene, and like all the women, the, the chorus are like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're a bit handsy there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, you know, I is mean, this, is fitness part of your, you know, what you do just to be marketable? Yeah. Well, I, I never think, well, okay, no, that would be a lie. I don't 
not ever think that it is important. It is important, um, but it's something that I always enjoy doing anyway because um, it's one way I deal with stress, you know, because uh, um, stress just sucks, as we all know. So for me, exercising um, just, you know, kind of pushes some of that back, you know, the, the normal stresses of, of life, of course, uh, of having a family and being and traveling all the time, being alone all the time. Uh, and then, of course, the career itself, you know, it's not... I mean, it's really tricky sometimes, you know, you, you have to fight your own demons all the time. And, and I would say 70% of them are not vocal, but mental, you know what I mean? So I think uh, exercise um, helps me with that. On the other side of it, uh, you know, nowadays, um, you know, the visual is more important than it used to be. I, I don't agree that it should be more important than the singing. I do, I do still think that singing is and the voice is really the most important part of it. But if we can be extremely honest in this type of time, this day that we live in, it's more and more important now, the looks, you know, it, not only to be believable in the roles that you're playing, but I mean, that's, we're just a visual society, you know, we want to see something beautiful. I mean, I don't want to say anything bad about any particular pop star, for example, but my favorite music is in the 60s and 70s and even 80s. And those musicians were usually incredible. They wrote incredible songs, great lyrics. I mean, of course, you've got the silly 80s songs too, but, but a lot of them were, I mean, incredible musicians. They played their own instruments. They wrote their own songs. Are they the most pretty? Usually not. <laughs> when you see some of those bands, you think, oh, okay, back then, of course, they were the sex symbols. But some of them you think now you're like, it's not the most beautiful, you know, air, <laughs> I don't know, air supply. You know, they weren't yeah. the most pretty guys ever. They're not like the boy bands of, you know, let's say the 90s or, or 2000s who are much more, you know, cute, handsome dudes or whatever. And now you know? they're androgynous. Now they're Yeah, like well, that's even, that's a whole other story. Uh, anyway, but uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But it was more, the, the focus was more on the songwriting and the, the way they played and all those things. Whereas nowadays, it's not as much that as, you know, Let's just be honest. So sometimes I think some things fall through the cracks. So I do appreciate that I can use some of my uh, natural attributes, but, and I, and I pay attention to them, but I never rely on them because uh, I, I love the music too much. So I'm, I'm really trying, I'm really trying to get better. And if, so, if, you know, some of the people say, oh, you look cute, then I'll say, Awesome. Thank you very much. That's really great. But um, I won't go crazy. You know, I'll just concentrate on the singing more than the, you know, I, I don't, I don't have six pack, you know, it's too much work. <laughs> it's just too crazy. You know, but I can, I can, you know, I can do some stuff and, you know, be fit, but uh, yeah, I don't want to get too crazy. <laughs> Thanks again to Oliver and tender Charles Castronovo for his time inside the huddle. A little bit of sports before we get to the second seg of the show this is a dreadful time for chicago sports if you've listened to the show long enough you know that here we are in chicago we love the sports teams this is like the 40 years in the desert right now white Sox completely beaten up and injured cubs on a major losing streak at wiggly field which by the way has the highest average single ticket price in major league baseball Blackhawks didn't make the playoffs. The Bulls fall to the hated Milwaukee Bucks. And the Bears are doing what the Bears do best, which is hire a new front office and then pretend that there's a whole bunch of 
optimism and that things are actually going to change and turn around. They do this approximately every five to six years, and maybe they'll throw in a move to the suburbs and threaten to build a new stadium. The Bears are just being the Bears right now. Here's where it is hot in sports, and I can't believe I'm saying this. Miami, Florida. Get this, last weekend, while Rich Strike was blowing away the pack at Churchill Downs, in Miami, you had the Miami Heat in the NBA playoffs. You had the Florida Panthers in the NHL playoffs. And the Florida Panthers, I'm not sure the last time was when they went to the NHL playoffs. And most importantly, you had the Miami International Grand Prix, which is part of the Formula One circuit. This is the first of a 10-year contract that Miami has signed, and only Miami does it best. It was built on a specific track uh, on the outskirts of Miami, for which the infield features swimming pools, a sandy beach, and a fake marina with five yachts on it. Who needs motor racing when you have all those toys? In January of this year, Ashley Hargave came up with a great new idea for a segment. It was so great, and it happened so fast, we didn't even have a name for it. We have a name for it now, Sporzando, lovingly coined by co-host Matt Cummings and lovingly recorded by Norm Waddell. The idea behind the segment, which has returned a couple times since then and will continue, was what is the intersection between sports and music? How has opera and music influenced sports and how have sports influenced opera and music? Ashley kicked it off with a phenomenal piece on the NBA and John Tesh. Check it out. I was watching the Summer Olympics last summer, and the basketball preliminaries were happening, and I heard this familiar tune, which I'm going to sing for you so that we don't get copyrighted. Take that, bots! <laughs> uh, and the tune was... Okay, so if very syncopated, yes, very syncopated. If you're of a certain age, that it stays with you, and even if you don't know it, you know it. I was like, I know this. Uh, I know what this is. It doesn't feel like it's supposed to be in the Olympics, uh, but it goes with something. And so I went on what I call an internet spelunk. I dove down. I lowered <laughs> myself into all of the buckets I could find. And I found out that that song was called Round Ball Rock, which is also known as the NBA on NBC theme. And that ran on television from 1990 to two. 2002 when it played 12,000 wow. times in it its booked, original run. It bookended the Bulls uh, three-peats, both of them. Abso-freaking-lutely. Yeah. Uh, so NBC revived it when they covered the Olympics basketball team. So that's when we heard it in 2008, 2016, and the 2020 Olympics, which were actually the ones where I heard it last summer in 2021. Fox got the rights to this four years ago for college hoops, but I haven't heard it there yet. But I, to be fair, I'm not watching a lot of college hoops on Fox. Okay, when I poorly sang that theme, how many of you actually like remembered something in the back of your brain? Yeah, definitely. The fact that I don't really has has no bearing on on whether or not this is relevant to pop culture. Take it to Grandpa Oliver. You're my only hope. Did you recognize the theme? 
Um, I'm not sure if it was in the right octave for me, and I have a very small brain. So I don't hear the exact accurate historical he pitch. He has perfect you know? pitch. He can hear <laughs> every single five. note. five. You know what? Fine. I will sing you a caller. But also, I don't watch. Later. I don't watch NBA. That's the thing. Mm. Yeah, but to be fair, this is the NBA of 1990 to 2002, so this was a while back. Yeah. All right. So at any rate, there is this insanely recognizable piece of music. It's tied to sports history, and then I spelunked a little bit further into finding out the history and the backstory of this song and guys it's a doozy so okay so that was written by john tesh round ball rock was <laughs> which yes pause for laughter pause for giggles pause for whatever your memories are of john tesh ladies and gents if you don't know who john tesh is we're gonna go on a wild ride and i'm gonna leave you presents to see on our website after this show is up so he was commissioned by the nba to write this theme in the late 1980s if you don't know about john tesh in the late 80s do yourself a favor. Google him. The visuals are majestic. So he's oh, wow. on tour. That is. Yes. Yeah. 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 Do it in real That's time, folks. You're all, watching. <laughs> You're all listening on smartphones. Google John Tesh right now. T-E-S-H. Uh, so he is on tour with his classical and rock fusion orchestra. Yes, that was a thing. Amazing. In Europe. And he gets this idea for this commission he needs to write for the NBA. And keep in mind, this is like late 80s, 1989. So he has no iPhone. There's no recorder. He doesn't have a piano in his hotel room. So what does he do? He calls his house in Los Angeles and he sings the message into his home answering machine so he doesn't forget it. Oh, right. I realize some of our listeners are Millennials young. Millennials so today have no idea what it, this it would be, story means. It would be similar to taking out your phone and taking a picture of something that you have to remember for later, which is my... Yes, yes. May, I, it makes me feel like an old man now that I say that out loud because the Gen Zs are coming for me. I can feel them uh, like breathing down the back of my neck, but I think it's the same sort of vibe. Aren't you That's a Gen correct. Z yourself? No, I'm, I'm a baby millennial. I'm like I'm like one of the last oh. last few millennials, uh, mm-hmm. so that means I've got to worry about taxes, and I uh, I don't know um, what fleek is. <laughs> <laughs> Topical reference from Just ten stop. years ago. Please, That's, please stop. You're, you're nailing it. So uh, so for you baby birds out there who don't know what an answering machine is, when you would call and leave a voicemail, and it would record to a cassette tape in your home residence. <laughs> that is where he documented this so that he could remember the theme. So there is an incredible video of him actually telling this story in a concert live at Red Rocks. And then he pulls out the actual answering machine that he used to record Lord. it and then performs the entire theme with his classical rock orchestra. Oh, it amazing. is we're going to have the video on our website. We're going to have a series. I'm leaving you a whole bunch of gifts this week. And when I tell you the like BD energy, the like sexual Yanni Red Rocks rock and chemistry, it's bonkers. It's absolutely between amazing. him and the answering machine. Are we talking like tran- Trans-Siberian Orchestra feels? It's that vibe. It's that okay. vibe. Um, more Mandarin collars and shiny vests. But yes, yes, definitely <laughs> that vibe. I, that goes uh, without saying, I think. There is also this really incredible sketch from Saturday Night Live, maybe 10-ish years ago, uh, that actually goes into what the creation of this theme might have been. At any rate, there's amazing stories behind this. And what this did, it got me thinking. There are stories behind all of these different types of music. The stories behind the roles that music plays in these punctuated moments within sports history. And believe it or not, how the reverse happens. How sports punctuates the history of our genre. These super fun backstories that, like, you didn't know you needed. Uh, so today... I'm going to tell you how BBC made a Turandot aria the prevailing anthem for world soccer. <laughs> Please tell. Signore Ascolta? 
Uh, so close. <laughs> so very, so very, very close. So it's nineteen ninety. The World Cup is happening. The BBC, the British Broadcasting Company, is getting ready to cover the World Cup. Producers there choose a 1972 recording of Luciano Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma with the London Phil and Zubin Mehta, and they use it oh, as the soundtrack to their credits. Now, let's think, this is a big risk for the BBC to use this. Most sports coverage of this time, 1990, had like 80s rock and synthesizers, decidedly not a 1926 opera aria, no. but... A producer wanted to capture this emotive and dramatic nature of the World Cup and was fixated on, like, the swells and the sores of this aria. And most importantly, the word vincero, which is I will win. Got it. Cool. Mm -hmm. Also, the games that year were in Italy, so it seemed like a match. So initially, the producers matched this aria with a clip of Marco Tardell's ecstatic celebration after scoring in the 1982 World Cup. And this is a clip they put together for the World Cup draw, just the draw. It went over so well that they decided to go for total emotional manipulation and there they use this the aria as the and opening <laughs> and, and the end credits pretty much any place they could jam it in during bbc's world cup coverage they put it in there's an article that was uh on the website the 42 which talks about the creation of this and i quote producers used the image of tardelli as he ran away I said Tartle earlier, excuse me. Producers used the image of Tardelli as he ran away with his arms spread and mouth wide open in delirium as the climax came. It was a mix of current and past grace, which we graphically stylized to fit in with the overall feel of the titles and, of course, with the music. Tardelli's celebration was the crucial shot for the finale, mouth agape to the mirror of Pavarotti's <laughs> voice. The original lip sync for your life. None <laughs> shall sleep indeed. Not yes. I, maybe I'm the only person on the panel who remembers this happening in real time. So Italian ninety, that was my second World Cup uh, yeah. after Mexico City in '86, and I remember this voice. I, I did not, of course, know who Pavarotti was at the time, uh, or Tardelli for that matter. But I remember those images synchronized with that voice and being like, "This is absolutely incredible." I have to tell you, the editing on this, we have this clip also, so I can I can show it to you. But man, let me tell you, the editors deserve every Emmy imaginable. It really is. It, it tugs at your heartstrings. If you can divorce yourself from like what's actually happening, because Kalaf kind of sucks, you know, but if you're thinking about just the words, <laughs> I will win as you're watching these victorious, you know, football players running around and, you know, mouth agape and embracing, it's amazing. <laughs> it is absolutely epic. And I'm not the only one that thought so. Football fans went wild for this collaboration on the BBC. So by the time the tournament reached the semis, 26 million people were tuning into BBC's broadcasts wow. this every wow. day. So people who never knew who he <laughs> was or what the opera was, Gesundheit Oliver, suddenly were half singing <laughs> Nessun Dorma all over the place. So you could hear people just, you know, humming this along. They recognized this tune, not knowing anything about opera. So... It becomes a big deal. It becomes a big hit. And in turn, a lot of people who didn't know who Pavarotti was all of a sudden do. And he becomes this big stock within pop culture. Uh, the recording at the time was like 20 years old. It mm -hmm. hit number two on the UK charts in 19. Wow. And that's back yeah. when charts used to mean something. Yeah, that's true. Still bought CDs. Something. Yes. And listen to and the, the radio. 
Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the telly. Uh, the hype only heightens. So Pavarotti goes to perform the aria in concert at Rome on the eve of the 1990 Italia World Cup final. This concert was coincidentally also the first performance of the three tenors who also performed Nessun Dorma together. So you get the birth of this pop culture sensation and then mm. followed by a second pop culture sensation all on the, the original of the El Divo. The orig- that is correct. The original well, boy is- band. <laughs> this also feels like the origin story for how we got the Aretha Franklin Nessun Dorma from the Grammy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we will get into that one in another segment. I have an entire analysis so excited. thoughts. And feelings. She's got her purse. She puts it on the piano. She goes. It's amazing. She splits the word Vincero into 18 syllables. It's incredible. Uh, So Pavarotti now has this huge thing in his pocket. And he really ends up becoming, you know, sort of not the anthem singer, but the anthem singer for all of these different sports events, most specifically in Italy. It becomes what we would call his sports swan song. Uh, And it was actually his last public performance as well. Uh, 2006 Winter Olympics in Torino, year before his death. Probably a step down. Yes. (laughs) You know, that's how it is. But at any rate, uh, BBC turned (laughs) Nessun Dorma into a prevailing anthem for world soccer, and it's been going for 30 years strong even most recently as euro 2020 when it was performed by andrea bocelli where the scene of the crime roma italia <laughs> what i'm amazing what i'm hearing you say is that this is the anthem throw all your hands up yeah <laughs> <laughs> a delayed reaction to that good charlotte reference <laughs> We're making it's, it's it 1997 well, like, again through there, there was or there was air right. between the joke and the laugh like it was it was a pause What's Italian for I'm coming out, so you better get this party started? <laughs> we should, uh, we well, should any find out. Aria but... di sortite would fit that, you know. <laughs> but uh, what we should figure out what we should get ahead of this, and we should figure out what is the unmined great aria that can be the next sports anthem. Ooh, ooh, yeah. I love that. Something for I... Team Canada? Oh, it's I I can't think of any maple syrup based operas, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Would it be in French or in English? Depends on how far east or west. Okay, well, we can we can put that to our listeners to think of one and we'll come back to you next time we do the segment with our Would anyone one. but Celine Dion sing it? <laughs> it? It does need to be sort of like eminently singable, right? And I'm not saying that anyone can sing Nessun Dorma, but but kind of anybody can sing Nessun Dorma. I, I mean, well, if I you're think a that football there's... fan and you've had enough pints in you, you can really soar on those tacks. I mean that's correct. More importantly, what I'm going to amend, I'm going to yes and uh, your suggestion and say that it needs to be able to be half sung by boundless groups of hooligans. We need a bunch mm, of drunk mm. Scotsmen and Irishmen and Englishmen leaning back and forth and half singing this with no syllables whatsoever. That's be kind and courteous is definitely <laughs> the winner. <laughs> I mean, we've 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 fallen a long way when the the anthem for uh, Euro twenty twenty when England won was a uh, "Sweet Caroline." Uh uh uh. Mm. It's phenomenal yeah. that Pavarotti <laughs> was twenty years old. I mean, he was in America. No, he terms. wasn't twenty years old. You're, you're confused. It, it, the, the recording. Was the recording was twenty years. The recording was twenty years old. So yeah. the recording that they used in nineteen. Thank you for. I was, from I was like, I, yeah, that would be involve a little bit of time travel, which might have been a little difficult for the budget of the BBC at the time. Mm. Now, now with, yeah. oh, with <laughs> now you can do anything knows. with the metaverse. Bring it yeah, back as a hologram. You're good to go. 
The only downside of uh, uh, the 1990 World Cup, of course, is that England would lose in the semifinal on penalties to then West Germany and then lose in the third place game to the Italians. Some things never change, George. We so had, it, didn't we have England versus Italy in our we did. Uh, Euro Cup last we did. year? And Barese, that quack, he, he <laughs> had the Italians winning the whole thing. I mean, you can't trust him. Barese, can't tr- you can can't trust, trust that Antonio Barese. Sometime, somehow came down on the side of the Italians. <laughs> I don't Ashley, know how that happened. You've got a whole bunch more stories in your pocket for the, for the future. Can you tease us on just one of those stories that might appear in a future episode? Well, oh, musical yeah, moments sh- and intersections. For sure. There are a lot of... You know that neighbor that lives in your building that you walk past and you see all the time, but you don't actually say hi to that often? That's the relationship between baseball and opera. And there's Mm. going to be a lot of times where baseball and opera intersect and a lot of times where they cross paths and a lot of times where facilities for opera might be used to communicate the outcome of sporting events. Hmm. That was utterly delightful. Just like that segment. Again, if you have a title for the brand new seg, you can tweet us at Opera Box Score. Uh, if you're watching on TDO, you want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get the full show, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow, Apple Podcasts, smash the plus. And if song. you choose the winning segment, you get to have Norm Waddell say those words on our show, and you know that you were the inspiration. That was you. And you get to stay at Oliver's house. And if you don't <laughs> get chosen, you should feel really guilty. Good call, bad call on Opera Box School. All right, time to wrap this show up. Good call, bad call. If you haven't seen the HBO TV series Southside yet, you absolutely have to see it. Sports? No. Chicago? Yes. It is some of the funniest, most honest stuff coming out right now, in my opinion, that is about Chicago. Check it out. Season 2 of Southside on HBO. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about Opera. Our announcer, Norm Waddell, he's at normwaddell.com. Send us that voice memo or email. Get your hot takes to us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you work on those spring flowers. We're back with an all-new show next week when we highlight the key players in America's summer opera season. It's going to be a lot of baseball, I think, as well in that. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and just more goodwill. Join us.